0: Om Shriharim Paramanandam Upadeshtaram Ishwaram Vyapakam Sarvalokanam Karanam Tam Namamyaham Can you hear me at the back? Yes, it's on. Again, I'm surprised to see how many choose to brave the almost arctic conditions. (laughs) Though the snowstorm is over, but it's still bitterly cold. So this is titiksha in practice. One of the central qualities required for a Vedantic student is a spiritual fortitude. Where I will put up with whatever troubles the world throws at me. Physical, like heat and cold, you know, bodily, like uh, pain or aches or uh, uh, illness or social, whatever, uh, mental, but I will pursue my quest. So many people sacrifice a lot to earn money, to pursue a career for their creative pursuits to write a book or to um, paint a picture. So if a spiritual quest demands at least that much commitment, if not more, at least that much commitment, that I will put up with trouble and suffering and pursue my spiritual quest. That is called Titiksha Vedanta, spiritual fortitude. We were on verse number come finished 87 so we are on 88 what has happened so far i know you must be tired of hearing this summary every class i do it but it's important to know what's going on the big picture vedantic teaching has two steps that's all the first step is to see come to an understanding that Apart from the world of objects, stars and planets, quarks and quasars, apart from the world of living beings, plants, animals, human beings, and so on, and microbes, apart from all of this, apart from the world of time, space, matter, and energy, apart from all of this, is the self, is you, consciousness, The witness self, in Sanskrit, atma. So this is the first step to distinguish the atma from the not-atma. In Sanskrit, anatma. Atma, anatma, viveka. Viveka simply means pritakaranam, to separate. Not physically. You can't take a pair of forceps and pull out the, or tease out the atman from the anatman, from the, the self, from the body. You can't do that. But in understanding... That I am none of this, this or whatever I experience is an object of experience. Whatever I see is a form, whatever I hear is a sound, whatever I smell or taste or touch are the inputs of various sense organs, they are all objects. Whatever I think, whatever I remember, whatever I feel, these are also objects. You see, they are also objects. Why? Because the very definition of an object is that which is known by consciousness. What's what's an object? It's something that is known by consciousness. So do you know your own thoughts? Yes. When you feel happy, do do you know that, that you're feeling happy? When you feel miserable, do you know that you're feeling miserable? Yes. If you know it, then happiness and misery, these are objects of consciousness. They are subtle objects, they are not physical, gross objects like this, but they are subtle objects. So, those are also objects. Quite apart from physical objects or gross objects on one, one hand and subtle objects on the other, quite apart from all of that is the self which knows or experiences you. A simple meditation is this, meditation in the sense of dwell on this fact, a simple pointer. All that you know are objects. Think about it. You, the pure subject, the knower, is never something that is known. You never appear in your field of knowledge. I'll repeat that. Everything that you know constitutes your field of knowledge. You yourself are not part of that field of knowledge. If you think on that way, you'll be able to distinguish the Atma from an atma, the pure self, that is the the true self, pure consciousness, from the object of consciousness. And that was just the first step. Vedantic teaching has, Advaitic teaching has two steps. That was the first step, where we realize what we thought to be the self. This body is the self. This mind is the self. We realize this body is not the self. It's an object. This mind is not the self. It's an object, a subtle object. And that which is the real self can never be an object. It's you. So this is the first step. Atma-anatma-viveka in Sanskrit. The second step is atma Advaitam. The second step which completes non-dualism, which completes advaitam. You see in the first step it's a clear, clearly it's dualism. Self and not-self. The whole universe, including body, including even mind, is put in the not-self. This is an essential step. Because our problem is, in this entire world of objects, we have taken a part of it, body-mind, to be the self. You're with me? What the first step does is to show you the real self is not body-mind. Not the changing body, not the changing mind. But the unchanging consciousness to which these appear, that is the real self. Step one. Step two is non-dualism. Because this first one was dualism. Clearly it's dualism. Two things, self and not-self. Step two is non-dualism. How do you establish non-dualism? The strategy is to show that the not-self has no reality apart from the self. I'll repeat that. The strategy is to show that the not-self has no reality apart from the self. The way to understand this in our dreams. What happens in the dream? In the dream, there are people, there are places, there are events. You may even feel cold in the dream. You can shiver, you stand in Central Park and shiver in your dream. But the body which feels cold and the cold world you see in the dream, all of that is imagined. In your mind, the dreamer's mind, is it not? That's what a dream is. It's the mind projecting. Whatever its experiences, Sanskrit, some scars it has gathered from the world, it uses those to make a movie and project it as your dream. So the point is: everything that you experience in the dream is not apart from the dreamer's mind is not an independent reality it's not that that thing was there and you went and experienced it rather it was projected imagined within yourself in your mind so that's a dream therefore the dream world objects in the dream things which are happening in the dream people in the dream the dream world is non-dual with respect to the dreamer's mind Didn't you follow? No. The dream world is non-dual with respect to the dreamer's mind. With respect to your mind, the dream world, all the people, all the things that are happening in your dreams, it's not a second reality apart from you. Non-dual means not second, not two. It's you which is projected as the dream world and you also project yourself as one person in the dream world. In your own dream, you're also there. But all of it, you who are there in the, in the dream and the, dream, the world which you experience, both of them are not apart from the mind of the dreamer. So with respect to the dreamer's why, uh, dreamer's mind, the dream world is non-dual. In the same way, what, the second step of Advaita, what Shankaracharya did, we studied this. What Shankaracharya did was he reduced the entire world. He showed that the entire universe the objective universe, which we had separated from the real self, that is nothing apart from the real self itself. It appears as names and forms in the consciousness which you are. It's not a second reality apart from you. No more than a pot is a second reality apart from the clay. No more than a wave is a second reality apart from the water. In the same way, the universe is not a second reality Apart from you. By you now I don't mean this body. By you I mean the result of the first step of our teaching. The result of the first step of our teaching was. You are pure consciousness. Pure existence. Pure bliss. Satchitananda. In you appears this world. As names and forms. Including the name and form which you call the body. And which ignorant people. Not you. you—we're not Vedanta students. But ignorant people will say, that's me. This body and mind is me. We know that we are the consciousness in which the body-mind appear, as does the universe, which is experienced through the body-mind. It's a tremendous step. So the universe is not a second reality apart from you, the Satchidananda. That's what we had come to. Two steps. And that completes non-duality. Advaita is finished, is over. Now what do you do with the rest of your life? <laughs> Keep coming to the class of course, but but then what do you do with your life? Verses 88 and 89 tell us that. Sarvatma jyatam Sarvatma Jagatsthavara jangamam Jagat's Tavada Jungam Abha Vartsarvabha Vanam Abha Vartsarvabha Vanam De Beautiful verse Sarvam Atmata Jagat Entire universe is realized as what does Advaita Vedanta say? Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya. Brahman is the reality, world is an appearance, is false. So the entire universe is realized as you'll say false. And look at what Shankaracharya says. After having having proved or shown that the universe is an appearance, now in the 88th verse he says, the entire universe is you. Sarvam Atmataya Jagat. Sarvam atmataya Gyatam jagat When you see, the jagat means the universe. When you, we experience, clearly see, this universe is atma, you. The clay experience, if it could experience, it would experience the pot as what? Me. The pot is me. The clay out of which the pot is formed is me. The clay, clay doesn't say, I am clay. pot is something else. No. It's one reality. Similarly, this universe, not one person in this universe is apart from you. Not one mean little creature in this universe is apart from you. Everything is you, not a part of you. It's you. So just like everything in, this un- in the dream world is you, is the dreamer, in the same way, everything in this waking world, whatever we experience, is you because it appears in you, the consciousness. You know, one professor, he was a professor uh, of philosophy in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, in a place called uh, uh, Amal-Nair, there's an institute of philosophy there. This professor's name was G.R. Malkani, He made an interesting comment in one of his books. He says, Advaita Vedanta is, it's a philosophy, but it's not just a philosophy. The more deeply you understand Advaita Vedanta, it's just a statement of fact. In fact, there's nothing to disagree in Advaita Vedanta. Every bit of it is just reporting what's there right now. Just see it and the job is done. He says, Advaita Vedanta cannot be refuted. The real Advaita Vedanta, that insight. Because it's just a statement of fact. You just see, it's a, it's a way of seeing this world. Seeing your experience. So when you say the world is nothing but you, seems to be a very radical claim. You're saying too much. Vedanta says on the contrary. It's a simple fact. Here. All that you see is not apart from your experience of seeing. Step one. If it were apart, you could could experience it without seeing, but you don't. All that you see is part of your experience, conscious experience of seeing. And your seeing is nothing apart, that whole conscious experience of seeing is nothing apart from the consciousness in which it is happening. There is no separate reality to it. So the entire world of objects is reduced to seeing seeing is reduced to consciousness dispute that or drigdrishya viveka for example world is seen eyes are the seer any problem with that no simple enough the eyes are experienced by the mind mind is the seer the eyes are seen any problem with that no the mind is experienced thoughts feelings emotions ideas memories are experienced all of us experience these what experiences them consciousness seer and the seen are different in fact the more you think about it is the first three steps seem to be first two steps seem to be very very reporting a fact the last step that everything appears to you the pure consciousness that's also equally reporting a fact That's the amazing thing about it. Once you begin to see it, it's tremendous. So, now he says, when the entire universe is seen as yourself, you, atma, sthavara jangamam, the moving and the unmoving, animals and plants. and Why only that? Rocks and uh, stones also. Then, very interesting second sentence. Abhavat Sarva Because of the absence of all objects, of all entities, how can you say this one body is the Atma? Now, when he, to be careful, when he says absence of all entities, Abhavat Sarva what are entities? This chair, table, this body, all of these are entities. Galaxies are entities, stars and, and the, 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 the the electrons and protons are entities. He says, all of them, there's an absence, they do not exist. Remember, in what sense do they not exist? When I say, in the clay, there is an absence of a thing called pot. In the water, there's an absence of a thing called wave. In pure consciousness, there's an absence of a thing called the universe. Exactly the same thing. I am not denying, however, that you experience a pot. That you use a pot. That you call it a pot. What I am denying is that there is some real thing called a pot apart from the clay. What Advaita is denying is not denying that you experience a world. Don't worry, the world won't disappear. After the class when you step aside suddenly Manhattan is gone. It's a burst of light. <laughs> no, everything will be there. The world will still be experienced, number one. And everything will work. Your car will work, your, um, your credit card will work, everything will work. Not that, not that everything is turned into Brahman, nothing works anymore. And linguistic usage also co- continues. You can call it a car, you can call it snow, you can call it a parking ticket. Don't worry, you're not getting a parking ticket. <laughs> you can still continue to call all of... So language will still work. Objects function, and you can experience the universe. All that Vedanta is saying is... Not one bit of it is different from the consciousness which you are. These are all experienced in that consciousness. There is no separate reality called the universe. Nor of the objects of the universe. What does it do to me? If you think about it, it solves every problem of our life at one stroke. Imagine, in a dream, I was feeling very cold. It's... it's, it's uh, Snowing, and I'm in Central Park I think I need uh, more uh, you know a heavier parka or something like that I have to put on a parka then you wake up from the dream and you're warm and safe in your bed do you still worry that guy in Central Park is shivering I need to run with him go back into the dream and give him a parka you don't you don't because that guy is not separate from you the dreamer It has no separate existence Similarly, you as pure consciousness, you have no problem Birth does not touch you, death does not touch you Physical problems of the body do not touch you as pure consciousness You remain the same A pot, when it is cracked, the clay is not cracked It remains as clay Similarly, when the body is diseased or old or dying Pure consciousness is not diseased or old or dying a diseased, old, dying body is experienced in pure consciousness. You're completely untouched by it. You see that. You see that. Will it make you callous? One question is, so just, since I will not run to the dream guy shivering in the dream park with the dream parka, so why should I help people in the world? Because they're all appearances in consciousness. No. You will help. That's the amazing thing about Vedanta. Often a deep commitment to non-dualism is all connected with a deep commitment to philanthropy and service. Because in the case of people who are suffering, you don't say they are false. You say they are one with me. And so anything that I I would do for myself, I'll do for them. If that person is suffering from uh, hunger or disease or ignorance, I will serve. I'll give food to the hungry and uh, medicine to the diseased and education to the, uh, to the ignorant. Just by the way, um, one of the greatest philosophers who just passed away, I think, last year or this year, last year, um, Derek Parfit, I mentioned him earlier. He has written a lot about the concept of self. Um, his ideas are more, uh, very close to Buddhism, actually. Though it doesn't expressly say that. He's regarded, if you, if you Google him, Derek Parfit, he's regarded as probably the most significant philosopher of our time, the late 20th and early 21st century. He passed away recently. One of the things he said was just on, the sh- on sheer philosophical logic, on the logic of ethics, one is not, he says, that, tremendous things like one is not even entitled to the wealth that one has. You see, legally you are entitled to your wealth. Morally you are not. He says so things like that. The poorest one billion, poor, he says poorest two billion of the world's population. He says the most moral thing, ethical thing that I can think of in life is to give everything that you have, time, energy, money, help, to those most poorest, those who are in need. And he spent his philosophy, developing the philosophy of altruism towards the end of his life. Advaita gives you a basis for that. Why would you do that? Some, uh, somebody wrote to Swami Akhandananda, a great scholar, traditional Vedantic scholar, wrote to Swami Akhandananda who was running an orphanage in a very desperately poor area of Bengal in those days, Murshidabad. And this scholar, I can tell you his name, Paramatana from from Kashi, was a very close to the Disciples of Ramakrishna. Said to him that. Um, you are monks. You should study Vedanta. And meditate and teach. And preach and go from place to place. Why are you running. Uh, orphanages and schools. And conducting relief activities. For for those who are starving. Or affected by floods. Or, or famines or earthquakes. Why? And Akhandananda wrote back. Such a powerful fiery letter. He says that. When I see that very Atman that the Vedanta talks about I see them hungry and wretched and miserable Sunk in the darkness of illiteracy and ignorance and superstition How can one's heart not go out to them? And if this is not spirituality If I have to go to hell for this, I am ready to do that I would rather a thousand times go to hell for this Than than follow your so-called spirituality now, Akhandananda is a Brahmagyani. He sees oneness with the universe. How can a non-dualist who says the world is false, engage in philanthropy, engage in doing good to others? Because, don't use that, that thing as, you know, the, the, the statement that the world is false there. What is applicable there is this one. He sees oneness with himself, with himself or herself. Oneness of the universe. If you see oneness, how can you not help? You would sacrifice everything to help others. That philosopher is uh, very interesting. He says, it's seen as a good principle that you give 10% of your wealth in in charitable causes if you are well off. But then he questions that. He says, "If if you take simple logic, the necessity and the need of the other person, and see the other person, the golden rule, that I would... Have you treat me as uh, I, I would treat you as as I would have you treat me? In that case, if that person has so much need, and I want, I, I will treat you as I would want you to treat me. If I were in that place, what would what would I need or what would I deserve? You deserve the world's wealth. I've never seen uh, academic philosophers so. He's a very, very nice person also, if you can just see if you see his YouTube talks He gave a talk at the Oxford Union this is His talks, his last few talks of his life are there on YouTube A Very saintly kind of person Sarvam atmataya jagat Once you realize the entire world The very doctrine of falsity of the universe Is exactly the same as the oneness of the universe The very doctrine which tells you the pot is not separate from the clay Tells you that the pot is one with the clay. Right? All these are appearances in in me, the consciousness. One. And equivalent statement is, all these are me. Then, 89. So how do you live your life? Shankaracharya brings this whole section to a conclusion. What section was it? First, First section was, Atma Anatma Viveka. Distinguishing between the true self and the non-self. Not nonsense, (laughs) non-self. Atma Anatma Viveka. Your Sankhya philosophy, your yoga philosophy stops there. That's the end of Sankhya and yoga. But Advaita goes one step further. It is not satisfied with dualism. It must come to an irreducible oneness. So the next step is Atma Advaitam. The non-duality of the self, which which means the non-reality of anything that appears to be other than the self, equivalent to, is equal to. You know, In mathematics we used to do implies, implies, implies everything that you see must be yourself. So that now how do you live your life? 89, verse number 89. Atmanam satatam janan. Atmanam Satan janan, kalam nayam mahadyute, kalam nayam mahadyute, prarabdham akhilam bhunjan, prarabdham akhilam bhunjan, nodvegam kartu no nodvegam kartu marhasin. Here is the conclusion of Advaita Vedanta. What's the best life possible? What's the good life? As Socrates would say, What's the best life possible? Atmanam satatam janan The vision of the Atma, that I am everything, Sachidananda, all the time, undiminished clarity, sh- shining, always knowing yourself to this, to be this infinite existence, consciousness bliss, always. Kalam Naya Mahadjyuti. O illumined soul. Now the guru is telling the student... That you are an illumined soul. Mahadyuti, the great light. Literally it means the Mahadjyuti. The great light. That, it means you. O, the, o illumined soul. Kalam Naya. Pass the days of your life. Vivekananda says... Heed no more than how body lives or goes. Let karma float it down... Its task is done. Go thou from place to place and help them out of Maya's veil. I am paraphrasing Song of Sanyasin. Now what will happen in this life? Okay, I know I am the Atman. But this body-mind still appears. I know it. it is an appearance in me, the consciousness. But what will happen to it? By our past karma, whatever was to happen in this life, that will keep on happening. Nothing different is going to happen. You are enlightened at this moment. You walk out of the the classroom. Manhattan is there. The snow is there. The subway is there. Your mortgage is there. Problems are there. Good things are there. All of it is still there. Prarabdham. My past karma is giving me these experiences. That will continue to give those experiences. Continue to experience life as it is generated by your prarabdha karma. What is prarabdha karma? We will see. No dvegam kattu marhasi. You should not become upset, excited, desperate, frustrated. Nothing in life should throw you off balance anymore. Swami Gambhirananda in one of his articles is written about three possible attitudes an illumined person might take towards this world. Three attitudes. One is... He says that illumined person completely ignores his world as an appearance and remains immersed in his his bliss, in the bliss of the Atman. I am Satchidananda. That person would mostly be in Samadhi. Vivekananda, after the first time he attained Samadhi, Sri Ramakrishna asked him, what do you want now? And Vivekananda said, I would like to remain in this state. Completely absorbed in the reality that I found. Once in a while i will come down and have something to eat, a snack, you know. And go back and remain in that state. And Sri Ramakrishna scolded him. said, fie upon you. I thought you were greater than this. I thought you would be a great banyan tree under whose shade. Hundreds and thousands of years to come they would find shade under you. And here you are thinking only about your own liberation. So Vivekananda, that made Vivekananda. And luckily that led to the Vedanta Society of New York and all of us sitting here today. Great. But remember, his attitude is not wrong. What Vivekananda asked for, that's not wrong or bad. It's a, that's the high, final goal of um, um, human life in classical Vedanta. You want to remain immersed in the truth. What can be greater than that? There are many yogis and sadhus who do that. A classic example was Ramana Maharshi. He completely remained immersed in his own, in a Sahaja Javasta, Not that he was in Nirvikalpa Samadhi all the time, but he remained immersed in that would you say is it, is it not selfish Vivekananda said no an illumined person wherever he or she is radiates goodness and spirituality in the world he says such a person even if the person sits and dies in the, and meditates and dies in a cave uh, just thinks five good thoughts for humanity he says it is not lost those thoughts will penetrate the walls of the cave and spread out throughout the universe they have uh, irresistible power So an illumined person, whether it's sitting in a cave and uh, in deep meditation or lost in his own self in the bliss, is also radiating goodness to the world, peace and and, and does enormous amount of good to the world. That's one attitude, Gamiranji says. A person, enlightened person may completely ignore the world appearance and choose to concentrate on the reality, which is the self, ignore the pot, concentrate on the clay. Ignore the ornament, concentrate on the gold. Ignore the names and forms, concentrate on the reality which is Satchidananda. Concentrate means b- remain stabilized in that. Okay. That's one attitude. The second attitude um, Swami Gambhiranji says is that the person may actually look at the world and and uh, and um, uh, you know Note the existence of the world as something wonderful, as a play of maya, as a play of magic. There's a story of a monk who is to remain immersed in meditation in his hut in Dakshineshwar. Once in a while he would come out and look at the world, you know, the Ganges and the temple and the people and would say, wow, wow, wonderful, glory, glory and go back to his hut and go back to meditation. Such people are often the crazy men of God. They may, be, they may look like madmen to the people of, of the world because they know the world is an appearance. They do not go by its rules. They behave like, like crazy people sometimes. And the third attitude is, which Gambhiranji says, remember these are all attitudes, possible attitudes of the enlightened person to the world. Third attitude is, the, person's, the enlightened person's heart melts in love and pity and compassion for the world. First, I have this amazing, fantastic thing which has solved all my problems and I know it can solve your problems. So there's a desire to communicate it and they become the world teachers. Sri Ramakrishna talked about three friends who were going on a journey and they came across a a long wall, a very high and long wall. They couldn't see what was on the other side of the wall. They were driven by curiosity. So... One of them climbed on the shoulders of the other and with great difficulty climbed over the top of the wall and stood there and looked on the other side and on the top of the wall his friends could see him Uh, he's standing there and jumping and you know dancing with joy and saying wow this is wonderful this is fantastic and he jumps over on the other side the other two are what did he see? the second person climbs up with great difficulty in the same story he says wow this is wonderful I must have some of that and he jumps over to the other side the third person is left wondering what did they see so he climbs with great difficulty and he sees a mart of joy Sri Ramakrishna says a mart of joy a festivity a wonderful thing going on on the other side he's delighted and he wants to join in but then he thinks what about the poor people of my village who are sunk in sorrow Spend their days in misery and darkness. I should tell them about this wonderful thing. So he turns around on the ledge and jumps back here and goes back to tell the people of the world. Those are the world teachers. Those are the world teachers. So that could be one attitude. And the world teachers do not limit themselves only to giving spiritual knowledge. When they see a lot of people in the world are not ready for spiritual knowledge then they would like them to be ready for spiritual knowledge. So they need material things. How to to enjoy this material world, this world, maybe it's in maya, but how to live a happy uh, life as far as maya will allow in this world and make progress towards spirituality. So they give a graded path. They may talk about not only giving spiritual knowledge, they may talk about giving secular knowledge, they may talk about giving medical help, they may talk about giving economic help. Sri Ramakrishna said, dharmahayana. which means you can't have spirituality on an empty stomach. That shows the connection between service and spirituality. Remember, and then but but the other thing that another monk also said: don't misunderstand this. Uh, well, Kali pete in Bengali. Which means you can't have religion. Spirituality on an empty stomach. And then he said the opposite. bhara pete o You can't have religion on a full stomach either. <laughs> aim of life is not to eat. Uh-huh. Or enjoy material comforts. and w- The world is not the aim of life. You need some of that. To grow. And then look for something higher. So that much development... Enjoyment of the world Success in the world Somebody asked me Is it wrong to succeed in the world No No not at all Buddha was a prince So it's it's good to succeed in the world An immature ego cannot renounce A mature ego I've seen the things of the world I've seen what they can do And what they cannot do Let me go ahead now Let me search for something higher That person is a spiritual seeker To some extent we all are Otherwise we wouldn't be here so that's the third attitude. The enlightened person tries to help others. So three attitudes towards the world. Enlightened person ignores the world. Should not condemn this. That person is also a source of great grace to the world. The second one is sees the world as a play of magic, or the glory of God, as, uh, as maya. Third attitude compassion and love and service. That's the third thing which Sri Ramakrishna pushed Vivekananda towards, the third thing. Yes? Swami, uh, in uh, I think first chapter of Bhagavad Gita, I believe Arjuna, Arjuna says to Krishna that I don't want to fight. Hmm. I just want to withdraw myself and meditate and enlighten myself. Krishna says that is not the right path for you. You need to do your dharma. Mm. How does that fit into these three paths? These are not three paths. These are three points of view of an enlightened person. Big, now, Arjuna was not an enlightened person. Right? If he as an enlightened person had said, I'm going to retire into the Himalayas and remain in for all, all life in Samadhi, Krishna wouldn't have much to say to him. Mm. But Arjuna wanted to attain enlightenment. And he said the way I am going to attain enlightenment is this. I am going to give up all this nonsense. And it was nonsense. A civil war. I am going to give up all this nonsense. And go and meditate in the mountains. You say enlightenment is the biggest thing. I am going to do that. So you should be happy. But Krishna says no. You want enlightenment. I support you heartily. That that you you should go for enlightenment. You should try, try to do that. But now what you are doing right now. This duty, now instead of doing it for, what was he doing it for earlier? To take revenge on his evil cousins. uh, To get the kingdom which was rightfully his. So all worldly goals. Instead of that, you have a spiritual goal. Now this work which has come before you, your duty, do it as karma yoga. So that becomes a spiritual practice. And then not only that, he teaches him meditation also. Upasana. And he teaches him the highest advaita. So those become steps to enlightenment for Arjuna. Krishna himself says, for you this is a spiritual practice. But what about, you can ask the question, Krishna why are you working? Krishna was the most active person. Why are you working? Many enlightened persons. You look at Swami Vivekananda or any very active persons. They do much more than us. Why do they work then? They don't need that work for enlightenment. They work as a third. That, the third uh, attitude. I said. has service. In Gita it, it's called loka sangraham. For the welfare of the world. You act for the welfare of the world. Not that person has anything to gain from that action personally. Even a, a worldly person has something to gain from action. Money. Status. Success. Or just the struggle to survive. And. The spiritual seeker also has something to gain. We also have something to gain from from action. It's a spiritual practice. It purifies the mind. It, It frees us from selfishness. So it's a powerful spiritual service. A spiritual practice. Service is a powerful spiritual practice for us. But the enlightened person does not need a spiritual practice. Does not need worldly goals. So why does the enlightened person act? For the welfare of others. The third attitude. Always keep your, most important, Atmanam satatam janam. So this is possible only for the enlightened person who is always established in the vision of Brahman. That Satchidananda ever shines. Unmistakably. It's open to that person. In And then how will time pass? Time will pass as the praraddha karma dictates. Praradha karma, let me tell you a little bit about The theory of karma. This is a nice segue into the next section which is coming up, next verse. According to Vedanta or Indian thought in fact, our present life, I'm not talking about Brahman. I'm talking about right now, basic level. uh, The way life appears to us. This body and this life, how did we get it? It's the result of karma. What karma? My past karma. I have existed in many bodies earlier. By I, who do I mean? This individual being which has got worldly and spiritual goals. First worldly goals and then slowly matures to spiritual goals. Whatever. This individual being. Sanskrit word, Jiva. What is this Jiva? Pure consciousness, Atman, limited by the mind. So this Jiva has gone through many births. Krishna tells Arjuna in the Gita, you and I, O oh Prince, have... have lived many lives, I remember them all, you do not. Now, as we go through those lives, we accumulate karma. We do work, we do some things, consciously. Whatever we do has a result. What you do consciously, deliberately has a result. I'll go a little more into detail here. Anything that we do has three kinds of results immediately. One is the gross physical result which you see there. You feed a hungry person, the person gets fed, his hunger is assuaged, and so you've done a good deed. That's clearly, you can see that. That's there. That's result number one. Result number two is the effect on our own minds. When I share my food with a hungry person, it develops the samskara of sharing. It has an effect on my mind. Any work that you do has an effect on the world outside and has an effect on your mind. Right? That's also pretty easy to understand. It develops a samskara. If you repeat it, it becomes a tendency in your mind. Good tendencies, bad tendencies, good habits, bad habits. They all are there. Second result. But what we are concerned here with is a third result which Vedanta or Indian thought speaks about which it calls actually karma. It means karma phala. A cosmic result. Do something good and something pleasant is going to happen to you. It works this way. Dharma, punya, sukha. Do good. Good means dharma. Result is punya. Merit. Merit. So in eastern civilizations you have the concept of Merit. Doing good things earns you. So your bank balance goes up. You have a positive balance. More merit. It's credit, it is put, it, put in your account. And what's the result? What's, what good is that merit? That merit generates happy experiences. Pleasant. Good things happen to you. And the opposite is also true. Adharma. Papa. Dukkha. Consciously, deliberately do evil. The result will be demerit called papa or sin or demerit. And the result of demerit is unpleasantness. Something nasty is going to happen to me because of my demerit. And the demerit has come because of my consciously doing evil things. So this merit and demerit generate sukha dukkha. Pleasant and unpleasant experiences in life. And to generate that, to, to make sure that we experience the results of our karma... We have these bodies. These bodies are given to us by God. Ishwara, Saguna Brahman. And they are generated because of our past karma. So the accumulated karma of each one of us. Over many many lifetimes. It is called Sanchita Karma. The accumulated karma. Karma means the total results. Which will merit and demerit. Merit and demerit. Accumulated. Is called Sanchita Karma. Literally, the word Sanchita Karma means accumulated karma. When is it accumulated? Past lives. I don't remember it. You don't need to remember. It's accumulated. And a part of that Sanchita, accumulated karma, becomes active from time to time. Becomes active means merit and demerit start giving their respective results. What are the respective results? Sukha Dukkha. Pleasant, unpleasant. And to experience that set of present and unpleasant uh, results we get bodies and we come to this world and we experience that's the general picture this part of the accumulated karma which has become active and has generated a body this life, this life that part of accumulated karma is called prarabdha karma that which has become activated karma karma is merits and demerits of many many lifetimes Activated karma is merits giving happiness, demerits giving misery, and our life is a mixture of the two. The body is generated by that karma. That's the fuel which is at the back of this body. Our age, how long are you? How long are we going to live? Generated by the prarabdha karma for this body. Prarabdha karma for this body. What major illnesses will I have? Generated by the prarabdha karma of this body. What were my parents like? Generated by the prarabdha karma of this body. I heard the story of um, um, this young woman who had come to Hollywood many many years ago. Swami Prabhavanandaji ji was the Swami. Um, a very senior nun told me the story. Um, she had a miserable life, and uh, she couldn't stick to the practices in Vedanta society. She kept coming and going back and uh, suffering in society, coming back again and going back again and so on. Finally, she committed suicide, I think. She died. She committed suicide at a young age. And the Swami went to see her dead body. And this person who was very close to the Swami standing nearby, she heard this, this nun. She told me that the Swami actually went there, looked carefully at her face, and then bent close to her ear, the dead body, and whispered, next time my child, choose your parents carefully. (laughs) But how do you choose your parents? Our karma, you really cannot choose your parents. You don't fill out a form. You don't fill in a form that, you know, I want parents like this or that. you can't, it's my karma. You can't, you know, it's just the opposite of the modern fashion of blaming one's mom and dad for everything that's bad in my life. This is just the opposite. (laughs) I got this mom and dad because of my karma. Okay, so that's prarabdha karma. How long am I going to live? As long, how long is this body going to live? As long as it's prarabdha karma lasts. If the prarabdha karma is there for no matter, a person may be shot and wounded and suffered all sorts of disasters in life, will go on living. If the prarabdha is finished, the tiniest little prick, pinprick will lead to an infection and the body will pass away. You can't stop it yes I'll come to you yeah. so from the sanchita karma which is accumulated karma oh. from the past uh, how is the product the karma decided because the, the karma is telling yes. how one's body lives how it's decided the the bank manager alone knows <laughs> we don't know but we, the general is a common kind of you know folk thinking in India that um, karma paripakwa. that means when the karma ripens and we get the result of our karma so, it's a dynamic process which is going on. It's not in cold storage. It's a dynamic process and um, I don't know what kind of process they follow. First, you know, they have these inventories, first in, first out, or last in, first out, leaf, off, leaf. I don't know what, what they follow, but some things they come. One thing they do say, Ugra karma, intense good karma or intense bad karma gives results first. I may have lots of past karma, but an intensely done good karma or bad karma now will give it result first. That stuff will come later. And we have to experience our karma. As we experience our karma in this life, the problem is we are generating new karma. If you want this to continue, then it's a good thing. If you generate good new karma, your future karma, will, future lives will be better. The ge- new karma which I'm generating now, by consciously doing good or bad, reacting to the things which life is throwing at me, my karma is throwing at me, I'm generating new karma. That's called Agami karma. Agami means to come. To come. That which is coming. This karma will be, will be added to my accumulated karma. So I am adding to my stock of karma. I am exhausting past karma in this life. I am adding to my stock of karma. You know in Jainism. Some of you may have heard. That is a religion in India that is very ancient. Historically at least as ancient as, as Buddhism. Because Mahavira was an elder contemporary of the Buddha. So that is at least 2500 years. But if you go by the Jain tradition. Mahavira was the last of the Titankaras, Last of the great masters who came and taught. 23 of them. So they go back several thousand years before that also. At least that's the claim. So it's very ancient. It's the most austere religion on earth. Extremely austere. Jain monks, they wouldn't be sitting like this. They'd be horrified. They would consider this. You're dressed up in, the, the, the good Jain monk will be nude will never wear, wearing clothes. In fact, there is a sect of Jain monks called the Digambaras. So who means sky clad, clad in the sky. They're so austere that if you wear clothes, you are not fit for enlightenment. Food is extremely restricted and all, all kinds of things. We invited one of them to give a talk at our center in Calcutta. And this uh, Jain monk is to live in a place in Rajasthan, which is on the Western part of India. And the monk said, oh, but you should have invited me earlier, but I can't go now. The seminar is, the, the lecture is two months hence, why can't you come? He said, but I have to walk, let alone aeroplanes and ships, no cars. It's a sinner who gets on a car. So these monks, even till today, they, wherever they go, they'll walk. So you have to invite him six months or a year in advance, so they'll walk from, and barefoot, of course, no question of uh, shoes or anything like that. Uh-huh. Very austere Now, why Also another important thing I must mention Though it's not relevant right here They're the most non-violent of all religions Sam Harris in one of his talks He said the Truly peaceful religion If you talk Most religions have components of some kind of violence in them Truly peaceful religion If you want to say There's only one religion He says that is called Jainism Most of you don't know about it He says And he says the more extreme a giant get, gets, the less you have to worry about him. Because the more nonviolent he'll get. <laughs> they wear filters so that they won't kill bugs, germs. They walk with a fan in the hand so that they can gently sweep aside the crawling insects. So that they don't step on an insect. And so on. So they, they're like that. But the point why I'm telling you this is, what, one of the reasons why they do this taking on so much suffering on oneself is this idea they are very big on karma for them our real bondage is karma we are trapped because of bad karma so the more I suffer and more austere I am the more my prarabdha gets exhausted and the less agami karma the less (laughs) less new karma I generate if I do generate any karma it's good karma simple karma not bad karma Yes? Wouldn't good karma still have to be... the results would still have to be experienced, so you still have to come back and experience it? Absolutely. Same? Absolutely. That's why in Vedanta, good karma and bad karma are both bad karma. <laughs> Vedanta will say that ultimately there's no good karma. It traps you. Well then, so how, how would someone like Swami Vivekananda like not have to come back and perform all these great actions? All right. That are, I, I'm coming to that. Yes. Vivekananda or Krishna or any enlightened person like Buddha. The answer to that last question is important. Once you are enlightened, something interesting happens. The Jiva no longer exists as such. Jiva Brahmhevanapara. You realize you are Brahman. And yet you function through a particular body and mind which people of the world will call the enlightened person's body. When the person... You don't think you are this body. You realize you are... Atmanam satatam janam, the, the vision of the Atma Satchidananda is ever before you. You realize that. But other people in the world will say, oh, that person is an enlightened person. Here is an enlightened person. We say, we point to the body. So the person still acts through the body. Now, what happens to the karma that's generated through the body? Because you're acting. If there's karma, then you have to be born again. What happens on enlightenment? Two things happen. One, no new karma will be generated. Since there is no agent of kar- karma. This is called karta, the agent. There is nobody who is actually doing karma there. So there is nobody to whom karma will accrue. Brahman does not do any karma. Akarta. Hmm. Enlightened, what does the enlightenment, enlightened person see action as? In the 13th chapter of Bhagavad Gita it's there. Prakrityeiva karmani kriyamanani sarvasha. Ya akartaram the one who sees all actions being done by prakriti, nature, Maya, or by God's wish, whichever way you have it, then what does that person think about oneself, the self which is acting? He says that he sees that the self is not an actor, not an agent of actor action. Akarta sees oneself as non-doer. That person really sees. What Advaita Vedanta claims is we are already non-doers. We don't know our non-doer self. We don't know the real self. We think we are this body and mind. So thinking that, feeling that, being convinced of that, when we act, results come to us. So that's what's happening. First, so two points. First, for an enlightened person, no new karma is generated for which that person will have to suffer or enjoy. No new karma comes to that person second what about past karma the entire accumulated karma of many lifetimes sri ramakrishna says a mountain of cotton you throw a matchstick into that it will burn up air, burn up in an instant so the upanishad says karmaani Tasmindrishte paravare, the, the, whole, the mantra is, bhidyate rhidaya granthi, chidyante sarva samshaya, kshiyante chasya karmani, tasmindrishte paravare. Realizing that transcendent, immanent reality, Brahman. You see, what's that? You. <laughs> the clay is transcendent to the pot. Also immanent in the path. You as Sachidananda, you transcend this universe. You are also immanent in this universe, everywhere. Realizing that transcendent, immanent reality as oneself. What happens? Bhidyate Hridaya All the knots of the heart are cut asunder. The knot of ignorance, which ties you to this body and mind. Thinking I am this. That goes away forever. You are free. You are free forever. You realize your real nature as the absolute chidyante sarva samshaya, all doubts are gone forever it's like a person looking at the sun directly you cannot convince that person that there is no such thing as a sun the vision is ever before such a person no doubt remains after that no book is necessary no vedas are necessary no upanishads are necessary no guru is necessary it's an the unmistakable experience sri ramakrishna tells vivekananda vivekananda asked him sir have you seen god Sri Ramakrishna said yes. Just as I see you. Even more clearly. Even more clearly. <laughs> and the third effect. It says. Karmani. All the past accumulated karmas are destroyed. There is no more karma left for that person. So that person is free. This will be the last birth. There is no more karma being generated. No more karma to be exhausted. As long as... Now, so this is the last birth. After this, there is no more person to be reborn again. Even now, there is no more person. The person has become one with Brahman. Now, a question. so this is the answer to the question. No new karma. Past karmas are destroyed. Hence, liberation. Moksha. This is called... This is the traditional idea. Shankaracharya will cut that down next. <laughs> he says, Generally, we understand in Vedanta... That um, upon enlightenment I realize I am Satchidananda. Oh one more thing let me just add here. It's cute. But it's deeply believed in India. A question is raised. Right that person knows I am Brahman. So the results will not accrue to that person. But can you say results are not there? In fact when an enlightened person acts there are results. Right now we are enjoying the results. Right see we are sitting here. Because of Vivekananda's actions. So, an enlightened person acts for the welfare. Christ and Buddha and all the enlightened persons acted, and their actions produce enormous results. So, results will be produced. How can you say there are no results? This is a doubt which is raised. When, the, when any particular body mind is acting, it will produce a result. It's simple, I mean, in physics also, you will see in the external world there will be a result. And there will be an effect on that enlightened person, that mind also. So how can you say that the third result, the cosmic result, merit and demerit will not be produced? And the answer in one school of Vedanta is yes, it is produced. The enlightened person's actions all produce merit. They are all good actions. Enormous merit is generated. In fact, the whole Tibetan Buddhist bodhisattva ideal is based on this. Bodhisattva ideal of Tibetan Buddhists is... He rejects Nirvana... The final dissolution. Let me be born again and again... As this illumined being Bodhisattva. Who will generate lot of merit... By his or her spiritual activities... And own sacrifices. And that merit will be used... Like a cooling shower... Upon the suffering humanity. I have enormous merit... You are suffering in the world, I give you that merit, freely, without asking for anything, your suffering is wiped out. Let all that suffering come unto me, take all happiness and uh, whatever I have earned, you take it from me. Somebody told the Holy Mother, Mother, I have heard if we touch your feet, you suffer. Mm -hmm. So I don't want you to suffer for me. Let me suffer the results of my own karma. She smiled and said, my child, how can that be? I will suffer. You remain well. You be happy. That's my my mission in life. Somebody said that uh, we heard Sri Ramakrishna suffered. He got the cancer and all because he took on the sins of so many disciples. And that's very bad. It should not have happened. And the Holy Mother said, do you think Sri Ramakrishna came to eat rasgulla's? It's a Bengali sweet delicacy. Did you just keep come to eat uh, s- sweets in this? No. An incarnation of God, one thing is that it releases enormous merit into the world and gives a, an upward push to the whole of society. So it has results. That's why the cute thing is that in India there's a belief that if you serve a holy person, then you may not have any spiritual goal in mind. You may just want money, somebody wants a child, somebody wants some money, somebody wants diseases to be cured. Serve a holy person, meaning thereby an enlightened person. And all the merit that person is continuously accruing, that will come to you. Some of it will come to you and your desires, worldly desires, very worldly desires will be fulfilled. And it has its basis in an Upanishadic statement. <laughs> Bhutikama means one who wants prosperity in the world. One who wants just success. I will be a millionaire. I will be a successful um, you know, New York Times top 20 author. Or whatever. I will win the elections. Very important in India especially. <laughs> you will find a cue to holy men and temples. in this before the elections in India. People of all stripes. All, all political stripes. Parties. They make a cue there. Why? The belief underneath the belief is. There is an enormous amount of merit this person is not using. This person doesn't want anything from that. If I serve this person, if I do something, give a little gift, a gift of food, or a cloth, or something, what, what does a monk need? Nothing more than that. But the result for me will be enormous. So a lot of people in India believe that. And the downside is this. If by chance, the enlightened person does anything wrong, if there is, you know, in actions, there's always Possibility of something, some harm being caused to others. Any bad karma that accumulates, that also does not affect the enlightened person. It affects those who try to hurt that enlightened person. So the good karma of the enlightened person, the merits go to those who serve and love and revere the enlightened person. And the bad karma, whatever remains, goes to uh, those who, dvishataha, that means those who are, uh, those who trouble or harass that that also is very much there in india a monk is basically a most helpless creature no money no power no job no uh, nothing nobody to protect that person and yet in india that a monk wields a lot of respect and a lot of uh, um, awe in among, among people i have seen this once i was traveling in a train with another monk um and this person gentleman sitting next to us he started criticizing monks. I was a novice, so I didn't say anything. And the other monk also kept quiet. And he went on criticizing monks. After some time, the time had come to get down in the station. This gentleman, he got up and suddenly turned around to that monk and caught you know, hold of his feet. And he said, Mahatma Ji, kuch oh, kar Oh Swami, I said many things in my foolishness. Please, please forgive me. A fear, an unknown fear strikes that person. That's because of this underlying idea. (laughs) I don't know if that happens really, but anyway. So that's the idea. Now, one more point and I'm done. No more past karma destroyed by knowledge. The fire of self-knowledge burns up past karma. Number one. No more agami, future karma. Because it does not generate future karma because there is no sense of doership, akarta. But now the question remains, what happens to the prarabdha karma which has started giving results, this body? If the person is not affected, all the karmas of the person are destroyed. Because the Upanishad says all karmas are destroyed. Then the prarabdha karma also should be destroyed. If it is destroyed, then this body cannot exist. But we see enlightened people, they're living in their body. Ramakrishna lived in his body, Vivekananda lived in his body, and all the enlightened, Ramana Maharshi and all the enlightened persons, they lived in their body until the natural age of the body. Which means the prarabdha karma is still working. How do you explain that? If the prarabdha karma is also destroyed by enlightenment, you know what would happen? The moment you're enlightened, you die. That's not a good selling point for Vedanta. Why are we here for enlightenment, for brahma gyan for enlightenment, illumination? What will happen? We will die. <laughs> there will always be um, you know, ambulances racing back and forth to <laughs> the Vedanta society. You call 9 oh another one enlightened at the Vedanta society. A 9-1-1 call. No, don't worry. The body will continue. Prarabdha karma continues to give results until it's exhausted. Past karma will not come back anymore. Future karma is not, not come to, is not going to come to you But the Prarada karma will continue to give results for the body Of course the person is not affected because he knows That I am Brahman, not affected at all He watches like a movie, the body play out its karma That's the theory That's the understanding That's why we have enlightened persons as gurus Otherwise an enlightened person if he dies immediately Then it means all the gurus are not enlightened They are not dead so no enlightened persons can continue to be in the body that means Prarabdha Karma is still working and various ways or examples are used you know it's like a quiver of arrows you have and one arrow you have shot and the other one you are going to set on your bow and shoot it Now enlightenment is like you throw away the quiver of arrows and the arrow you have in the hand, that also you throw away, you don't shoot any more arrows, but the one which is flying in the air, that will go on and hit its target. So Prarabdha is like that, some people say. Some people say it's like the last two or three revolutions of the potter's wheel. After the potter gets up, the wheel still, you know they have a potter's wheel, it goes on one or two revolutions, like the fan, you switch it off, it doesn't stop immediately. One or two revolutions like that. Examples are given. So this is the Advaitic explanation. Why do enlightened persons still continue to live in the body? We are glad that they do. But technically you must give us a philosophical answer. Logical answer. This is the answer. Shankaracharya will say not right. (laughs) For that next time. But next time is you are going going to wait for two weeks. Um no class next Friday and the Friday after that. Um, and then in the last week of January, we again have a, a Parokshana class. Um, day after tomorrow, we're celebrating Swami Vivekananda's birthday with a special talk on Swami Vivekananda and songs and of course uh, Prasad, food. Um, on Monday, that's the actual birthday of Swami Vivekananda. So at 8:30, we have a short puja. Please do attend both. Uh, programs, and uh, the Sunday after that, Pravrajika Gita Prana, the nun from our Ridgely Manor, Vivekananda Retreat, Ridgely Manor she is going to come and speak about everyday Vedanta, so do come alright, in this class we will meet again after two weeks Om Shanti 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 he. Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Rama Krishna Rupa Namastu.